on chapter 5 if you have a Bible. If you don't, the words should be up here on the screen. Uh, There are printed messages at both exits. You can grab one if you would like. Even now, get up and get one. And uh, those are on the website as well. So you can, if you've got a device, you can hook up. I don't remember the church password, but uh, you can get on that even and uh, follow it right now or go on later. And the audio messages will be up there later also. We come to John 5, verse 30. We're breaking into the middle of Jesus' defense in response to the Jews who accused Him of breaking the Sabbath and even more serious, of making Himself equal with God. And uh, these are His words in response to that. In verse 30, He says, "...I can do nothing on My own initiative." As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which He gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, He has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His form. You do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He sent. You search the Scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The uh, section goes on down to the end of the chapter, but we need for sake of time to stop there this morning. How, How can you know for sure that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as John wants us to believe in his gospel? When I was a boy, I used to sing an old hymn. Uh, you ask me how, you, how I know He lives, and the reply was, He lives within my heart. Well, that's fine, but that's not very objective. I mean, a Buddhist could say, well, Buddha lives within my heart, and how are you going to prove or disprove that? Um, it's subjective. And a critic might say, as um, some say, well, Jesus is just a legend or a myth. Or I just read this morning, uh, Bill O'Reilly has a a book out in which he says the gospel authors embellished the story about Jesus, that it's not really the truth, that kind of thing. Uh, Some might argue, well, he was just a great religious teacher who tragically was murdered by a bunch of jealous uh, men, and that's all that happened there in the gospels. Well, how do you establish the truth? 
about Jesus. If you've ever sat on a jury or followed a courtroom drama uh, in a a movie or on TV or followed a trial on the news, you know that having multiple witnesses who have a reputable character and they all say the same thing independently of one another is crucial to proving the truthfulness of a case. Uh, When you go to court and you bear witness, you have to swear to tell the truth under penalty of perjury. And again, if you have more than one witness and they all come in and they all line up and they all say the same thing, then uh, the case is pretty secure. Now, in our text, Jesus is giving his uh, defense to the Jews who were accusing him of breaking the Sabbath and of making himself equal with God down in verse or up in verse 18. As I have mentioned the last couple of times in our study, rather than backing off from that claim and saying, oh no, I didn't mean that at all, Jesus, as it were, ups the ante. He he, uh, comes on even stronger and gives proof for uh, that claim that He is equal with the Father. He shows them that He's one with the Father in all of His actions. Uh, In verses 22 and 23, as we've seen, he says the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that, even more incredibly, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Uh, That would be blasphemy if Jesus were not God. He asserts that the Father has given him, the Son, to have life in himself and to give that life to whomever He wishes, and that one day He is going to speak the Word, and incredibly, all who have ever died are going to be raised from the tombs, either to a resurrection of life or of judgment. Again, Jesus is clearly claiming to be equal with God. But how do we know that claim is true? I mean, what evidence backs it up, and would it hold up in court? Well, Jesus, in answer to these questions, and I think in deference to Jewish law, which required two or three witnesses to establish every matter, uh, calls to the bench, as it were, a number of witnesses to verify his claim. Now, the concept of witness or testimony is very, very important to John. He uses the verb 47 times in in this gospel, and 30 more times in his epistles and in the Revelation. And uh, he's, he's in effect saying, you don't have to take a blind leap of faith or base your faith on subjective things alone. Here is the evidence that Jesus is in fact the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the truth. Now, there's one main witness throughout this um, testimony that Jesus gives, and that's the Father. Um, The Father uses these other witnesses, but the Father is behind them all, bearing witness of Jesus. In 1 John 5, 9, John makes this statement, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning his son. What he's saying there is he's pointing out something that's true every day, and that is 
every day you base your life on the testimony of others. You trust fallen people and their word. You go in the grocery store, you buy food, you don't take it home and run a chemical analysis to make sure that it's not been poisoned or contaminated or spoiled or something. You trust the reputableness of the company that made it, of the store where you bought it, that sort of thing. You don't know those people. They're only people. But John says you trust them. Why not trust God? Or another example, you go into the bank and you hand over your paycheck to the teller whom you probably don't know except to say hello to. And uh, this unknown person takes your check, stuffs it in an envelope, hands you a slip of paper, and you believe that it's really going in your account and that the bank is not going to take all their employees to Tahiti on a vacation on your money. That, you know, you're trusting the witness of men. John says the witness of God is even greater that he is born concerning his son. Now, in our text, in verses 30 through 32, uh, it's the father who is testifying in conjunction with the son, with Jesus himself. When he says, there's another who testifies of me, he's referring to the Father. Then, in verses 33 to 35, Jesus brings the next witness in, and that is John the Baptist bears witness of Jesus. Then, in verse 36, Jesus says, the very works that I do, the miracles, they bear witness of me. And then, in verse 37 and down actually through verse 47, although... We can only work down through verse 40. Jesus brings the Scripture to bear and says, The Scriptures bear witness of me as well. And since all of these witnesses, independent witnesses, line up, they give evidence that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, so that, as John says, His purpose is we would believe in Him and have life in His name. Now, before we look at these various witnesses, I need to bring up two matters that we need to consider here. First of all, and I don't think we should have to debate this point, but we do, uh, there is such a thing in the spiritual realm as absolute truth. Okay, what I'm saying here goes against the prevailing cultural mindset that is called postmodernism. And the postmodernists want to say either there is no absolute truth, or if there is, we can't know it. And so we just don't know because who can know anything for certain? Um, That flies in the face of the Bible. And by the way, it is totally self-refuting. I don't understand how educated people buy into it. Because if it's true that we can't know anything for certain, uh, then it's true we can't know postmodernism is true. And so it's uh, thrown out the window by its own Uh, things that it is uh, assuming. But uh, John here repeatedly emphasizes truth, truth, truth. Leon Morris puts it this way. He says, truth is characteristic of God, and it's only as we know God that we know truth. Um, John, as Morris points out, John uses the Greek noun for truth 25 times in his gospel, and 20 more times in his epistles. Uh, By way of contrast, the gospel of Matthew only uses truth once, and Mark and Luke use it uh, three times in each of their gospels. 
And then John uses two other Greek words that mean true more than any other New Testament authors use those words as well. Now here in our text, Jesus asserts in verse 32 that the Father's testimony about him is true. He asserts in verse 33 that John has testified to the truth. Later in John 14:6, Jesus said, I am the truth. Uh, in John 17:17, 17, 17, he prays and says, Father, your word is truth. In John 18 um, and verse 37, he is before Pilate in his trial, before his crucifixion. And Jesus makes this claim, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. Here's why Jesus came. To testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so we need to affirm there is absolute truth in the spiritual realm, and there is also damnable error in the spiritual realm. In other words, it's not just, well, who knows? We can't know. No, we can know. The truth centers in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we need to affirm that. There's a second thing to note here before we look at these witnesses, and that is that Jesus' aim in these verses is not to win an argument, but to win souls. See his words in verse 34? He says, I say these things so that you may be saved. That's why he's making this argument, so that his hearers would be saved. And in verse 40, he laments, you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. They are spiritually dead and they need life. And we can learn from that, that when we have opportunity to bear witness to someone, the goal is not to win an argument. It's so easy when you get, you know, you start talking to someone and they bring up evolution or they bring up some, some other idea. You want to win. You know, you want to convince them. You want to win the argument. Well, that's not the point. The point is you want to win their soul. You want to bring them to Jesus. You want to see them come to faith in Him because they're spiritually dead and they need life. And the problem is, as he says in verse 40, they're unwilling to come to Him that they might have life. And so the point of all these witnesses is to testify who Jesus is uh, so that people, and I say that generically, but let me make it more pointed, Jesus is giving all these witnesses so that you personally might be saved. That's His aim, that every single one of you might be saved. Okay, so let's look at the witnesses. Uh, Jesus is saying here that the Father bears witness to him, to Jesus, through four things. Through Jesus' own testimony, through John the Baptist's testimony about him, through Jesus' works, and then, fourthly, through the Scriptures. And the aim of all of it is so that we might come to Jesus for eternal life. First, let's look at how the Father bears witness to Jesus through Jesus' own testimony to Himself. That's in verses 30 to 32. Now, we've already seen in verses 19 down through verse 29 how Jesus bore witness of Himself. And in verse 19, He made the point that it is impossible for Him, the Son, 
to do anything independently of the Father because they are of one nature. And in verse 30, he essentially repeats that point to sum up his testimony here. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And repeatedly in John, Jesus mentions, the Father sent me to earth. In God's eternal plan, the Father sent the Son to bear our sin on the cross. Jesus consented to the plan. He left Heaven, where He is eternally one with the Father, He came down to earth, took on human flesh, and everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus said when He was on earth was in submission to the Father's will, culminating in the cross. God verified Jesus' sacrifice by raising Him from the dead, and uh, so He wasn't bearing witness independently of the Father. That's the point. Now, a Jewish lawyer at this point might have stepped in and said, well, that's all well and good, but, you know, in a court, we need more than your witness. Your witness is not enough. Uh, You have to have two or three witnesses. And Jesus, as it were, um, concedes that point in verse 31 when he says, if I testify, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true or it's not valid in, in the sense of, what Jesus is saying, if I'm acting independently of the Father and that's all you got to go on, granted, my witness is not valid in a court of law. So he goes on to give other witnesses behind his claim, but the point here is, behind all of these witnesses is the Father. And as I said in verse 32, it's the Father who's the another. When he says, there is another who testifies of me, And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now you have a similar and yet somewhat different interchange in John chapter 8. There in verse 13, the Jews, the Pharisees, say to Jesus, you're testifying about yourself and your testimony is not true. And on that occasion, Jesus gave this reply, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true for... I know where I came from, and I know where I am going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. And so what Jesus is saying there is, even if my testimony wouldn't hold up in a court of law, it doesn't mean it's false. It is true. I know that I was sent here by the Father. I know I'm going back to the Father after He accomplished the Father's will. And then Jesus added this in John 8, 17 and 18, he said, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So Jesus is saying, my self-testimony is true uh, because the Father backs me up. Now, when anyone gives self-testimony in a court, it all hinges on that person's character, doesn't it? You, you know that on a personal level. Say you've had dealings with someone and you just don't trust them because they're shifty, they're lying often, they make up one story and then you catch that the story isn't right and you confront them and they make up another story. And, and even when they're telling the truth, you don't trust them because they have a reputation for falsehood. 
But everything about Jesus points to his integrity. Everything. When it comes down to his trial, the Jews could not find two witnesses to agree on something against Jesus. Their stories contradicted each other. And even when Jesus stood before Pilate and he um, grilled him, Pilate's conclusion was, I find no guilt in him. The men who were the closest to Jesus for the three years he was on in ministry on this earth, the disciples, every one of them was willing to lay down their lives in martyrdom because they believed the testimony of Jesus was true, that he had integrity. Every one of them except John, and John, of course, died in exile, uh, was willing to die for the truth of Jesus. And so the point in verses 30 through 32 is, Jesus' self-testimony is true because he never acted independently of the Father, and the Father bore witness to Jesus through Jesus' own testimony about himself. Then Jesus brings in a second witness in verses 33 to 35, and that is John the Baptist. The Father bears witness to Jesus through John the Baptist. He says, You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, that is John, was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. God sent John the Baptist in fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 40 and in Malachi 3 to be the messenger who would go before and prepare the way of the Lord. Um, He bore witness of Jesus. But Jesus is saying here, John isn't my key witness because he's just a man. Uh, I don't need the testimony of men. I have the testimony of the Father and, as we'll see, of his own works and of the Scripture. But... um, Jesus mentions John here because for a while at least, the Jews were flocking out to the wilderness to hear John. He was kind of a phenomenon in that day. And they were all going out to hear him. But uh, if they had only listened to John's testimony, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they would have been saved. John was probably now in prison. And so the lamp had gone out. But Jesus says he was a lamp. He wasn't the light. He was sent to bear witness of the light, as we saw in John 1. But he did bear witness. And the Jews had rejected that witness. And I think the key phrase here is that little phrase, for a while, in verse 35. For a while you were willing to rejoice in his light. It's like the window shade went up, and you could see the light through the window, through John, You could see into the light of Jesus and who he was. Now John was in prison. God had lowered the window shade. And the opportunity that the Jews had to believe through John had gone by. And they were not saved. And so the point for for us is this. God gives a window of opportunity to salvation to you. And that opportunity, if I may be so bold as to say it, is right now. Here's why. God is speaking through 
me. I'm not on a level with John the Baptist, but I am a messenger of the Lord, speaking the word of the Lord and offering the good news of the gospel to you, saying Christ died for your sins. You must come to Him and repent of your sin and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And right now, today, is the opportunity God is giving, and if He's speaking through me to your heart, don't walk away from it because the shade might go down. And you'll never have the opportunity again. Now is the day of salvation, the Bible says. And today is the day to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another witness in verse 36. There's Jesus' witness through, or the Father's witness through Jesus' own testimony. There's the Father's witness through John the Baptist. And then thirdly, there's the Father bearing witness through the works that Jesus did. Verse 36, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to, do, to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. Now, by His works, Jesus is mainly referring to His miracles that He did. And they were unique signs that He had been sent by the Father. Uh, in, verse, in chapter 10, the Jews asked Jesus in verse 24, Well, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answers them in John 10:25, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in the Father's name, these testify of me. And then later he told the disciples in John 15:24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, Jesus' works were unique, his miracles, they would not have sinned, meaning they, they wouldn't have this guilt that they now have. Now they've seen and rejected me, he says. Uh, now they've both seen and hated me and my Father as well. And so the miracles of Jesus, which are recorded for us in the, in the four Gospels, are abundant testimony. He is the Son of God. J.C. Ryle points out five distinctive features of Jesus' miracles. He says, first, their number. They were not only a few, uh, but many indeed. Second, he says, their greatness. They were not little, but mighty interferences with the ordinary course of nature. Third, their publicity. They were generally not done in a corner, but in open day and before many witnesses and often before enemies. Fourthly, their character. They were almost always works of love, mercy, and compassion, helpful and beneficial to man, and not mere barren exhibitions of power. Fifthly, their direct appeal to man's senses. They were visible and would bear any examination. Ryle also points out that the Jews never attempted to deny the reality of Jesus' miracles. Rather, they had tried to attempt to say, well, they must be done by Satan, and they attributed them to Satan. You know, you have skeptics today who will say, well, show me a miracle and I'll believe. And the answer is, no, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't, because there's a sin issue involved. But, you know, they, they don't need to see miracles. Romans chapter 1 says, God has, has made His power evident through the things He has made. 
I just read, maybe some of you read it, the cover story on Reader's Digest last month. It's really a wonderful uh, testimony to God, although they don't mention God. It's the amazing facts about your human body. And uh, the story goes over just how amazing the eye, the sense of smell, the sense of taste, the, the skin, the, the various organs, the digestive system, your lungs, your blood circulatory system, your kidneys, everything. It's just amazing. And it uses the word amazing. It uses the word incredible. It uses the word magical. It never uses, the, that I could find, the word miracle. But, and it never, of course, mentions God. But my point is, the human body could not possibly have happened by sheer chance. I don't care how many billions of years you want to give it. Evolution is a complete and total myth. And they have the evidence of the power and miracle of God right under their noses. And they say, show me a miracle and I'll believe. And, you know, and the reason, by the way, the human body could not have evolved is you've got to have the whole thing at once. You, know, you can't just have part of a body. You've got to have a complete digestive system, circulatory system, kidney sy- system, reproductive system, brain Everything has to be there all at once, and that couldn't evolve gradually. Well, there's a digestive system working all by itself over there. Eventually, that'll become a human body. That's absolutely absurd. And there is no proof for evolution at all, and yet you have even supposedly Christians believing it. It makes me mad. But um, anyway... Miracles. That's a proof of who Jesus is. So you have Jesus' testimony to himself. John the Baptist's testimony is the second witness. Jesus' miracles is the third witness. And the final witness he brings in is the Scripture. The Father bears witness to Jesus through the Scripture. Verses 37, and it goes all the way down through 47, but I'll just read through 40. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me, You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You don't have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And here's the problem. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Now, scholars debate in verse 37 when Jesus says, The Father has testified to me. What's he talking about there? Some say, well, maybe it's on, uh, at his baptism when the voice from heaven spoke and <clears throat> said, Here is my son. Uh, the problem is John doesn't mention the baptism in John's gospel. Uh, some say, well, maybe it was the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John heard the voice out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Again, the problem is, John doesn't record the transfiguration story in his gospel. I think the context gives us the answer here of how the Father bears witness of Jesus, and that is through God's Word. Um, Jesus indicts the Jews here. He says, you study God's Word, but you miss me. (laughs) You miss the point of God's Word, which is to bring you to me. And the point is, all of Scripture, all of God's revelation that He has given us, Old and New Testament, focus in on one person, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He is the uh, point of Scripture. For example, 
in the very first part of Scripture, Genesis, after Adam and Eve fall into sin, God comes and says to Eve, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. That's an early prediction of Jesus, the seed of the woman who will come and conquer Satan. Uh, God clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins, pointing the way again to the sacrifice of an animal as a substitute to provide for the covering for our sin. Uh, You come down to Genesis 12 and God um, promises Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's a prediction of Jesus and how He is the seed of Abraham. In uh, Genesis uh, 22, you've got the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. Again, a picture of God sacrificing His only Son on our behalf. Of course, there God provided the ram. Uh, You come to the law of Moses and you get all of the sacrificial system. Again, as the author of Hebrews says, all those have been fulfilled in Jesus once for all as our sacrifice. You read the Psalms. Psalm 22 tells about a crucifixion. uh, 700 years before crucifixion was a known means of execution and it predicts Jesus' death. Uh, Psalm 110 speaks of Jesus. Many of the other Psalms. Isaiah 53. uh, Read that to a person who knows nothing about the Bible and they will say, that's talking about Jesus, isn't it? If they know the story of the crucifixion. uh, Written 700 years before Jesus died. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus is walking with the... uh, Disciples, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it gives this description of his conversation, Luke 24, 27. Then beginning with Moses, that is the books of Moses, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. How I wish that conversation had been recorded. God saw fit not to record it because we have to dig those things out of the Scriptures, but I would give up seminary, I would give up all the books in my library if I could sit there and hear Jesus work from Genesis to Malachi explaining all the things about Himself in all the Scriptures. Now, Jesus indicts the Jews here for three things. Leon Morris points these out. First of all, in verse 37, you have not heard His voice at any time. Moses had heard God's voice. These Jews claimed to be followers of Moses, but they weren't. Because if they had heard Moses, who heard God, they would have heard Jesus' words as well and recognized His uh, voice as the voice of God. Second, he says, you have not seen His form. Verse 37. Jacob, as you recall, saw the face of God. Peniel means the face of God, where he wrestled with the angel who um, I believe was a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. I think Jacob wrestled with Jesus there. And uh, yet the Jews were not true sons of Jacob or they would have known what Jesus told Philip. He who has seen me, Philip, has seen the Father. Uh, Thirdly, Jesus indicts them in verse 38 and says, you don't have his word abiding in you. And although, as verse 39 says, they studied the Word, many of the rabbis had memorized the entire Hebrew uh, Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, 
They studied it wrongly because their study had not pointed them to Jesus. He is the point of the, of the Scriptures. His last phrase in verse 38, For you do not believe him whom he sent, might either be the evidence for Jesus' indictment of the, of the Jews, or it might be the cause of it, or both. In other words, the reason they didn't hear God's voice, or see God's form, or have God's Word abiding in them is they didn't believe in Jesus and He was sent by the Father and their unbelief was evidence that they didn't believe in Jesus and that Jesus' indictment was correct. Now, the words in verses 39 and 40, Jesus' words, you study or you search the Scriptures and so on, show there is a wrong way that you can study the Bible. And so when you come to the Bible, you have to study it the right way. If you come to the Bible from an academic perspective only, it can lead you astray and lead to tragic results. Here's why. These Jews were filled with intellectual pride. We know the Scriptures. We're not like those common people. See, they were filled with pride. And pride is at the root of all of our sins. And if you start getting proud about what you know about the Bible, uh, you're in trouble. And it can lead you to false hope because you start thinking, well, I have eternal life because I, I know all this stuff about the Bible. You don't have to tell me. And I've been around people like that. They're arrogant. And the Bible has not led them to Christ. If the Bible does its work in you, you see the glory of Christ and it humbles you. Because you go, oh, woe is me. I'm undone. So they studied the Bible, and they missed Jesus. And he's the whole point of the Bible. And that leads to the last thing. The reason that the Father gives all of these witnesses to Jesus is so that we may come to Jesus and have life. Jesus says tragically of the Jews in verse 40, You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. That's their problem. Unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. C.H. Spurgeon has two sermons on that verse. And uh, one of them, you can read them both online, by the way, at Spurgeon.org. If you're not familiar with that website, you ought to go there. Um, but um, Spurgeon preached the first sermon that he did on that when he was only 21 years old. And he had incredible insight and depth when he was just a young man like that. Uh, he had four points that he developed, and I just wanted to share them with you. I won't go into any elaboration on them as he does. His first point was men by nature are dead. That's why they need life. Uh, second, his point was in Christ Jesus, there is life. His third point was uh, eternal life is given to all who come for, for it. And his final point was by nature no man will come to Christ because they're unwilling. And on that last point, he explains that no one can come to the Father, uh, uh, come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And uh, he makes the point that uh, no one who is born of God boasts in himself and says, well, it's something I did by my free will. Everyone who comes to Christ says, you know what? If God had not intervened in my life, I would be lost. And all the praise and glory goes to him. But don't miss Jesus' point in verse 34. He says, I say these things 
so that you may be saved. And I want you to personalize that. Are you saved? Do you know you're saved? Do you have eternal life? And if not, go to the Scriptures, the Gospel of John, and search it and say, God, open my eyes that I might see Jesus. Because John says, I wrote these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. That's the whole point of the Gospel of John. And sometimes people say, well, how would I know if I'm saved? And my answer to that is, well, do you have life in Jesus? I mean, has He changed your heart so that where formerly you went, eh, the Bible, boring, now you go, the Bible is a treasure. I love it. It's food for my soul. Uh, before, now, well, God, I'm indifferent. Now, I love God and I want to know Him more. Before, the people of God, ah, oh, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. Now, I love God's people. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ and I, I love being with them. Yeah, they got their faults and so do I, but we're a family. And you've changed your, your heart that way. Before serving God, oh, that's drudgery. Now, I love to serve the Lord. Uh, and before, you didn't even believe in His coming. Now, Paul says, all who love Jesus love His coming. They love His appearing. So, you're changed in that way. I uh, know a man, and years ago, back in the early 70s, he professed to know Christ, and he was a good Bible teacher. I sat under his teaching some. And uh, he went on and got a Ph.D. at Harvard in New Testament, I think. And he is far more brilliant and accomplished as a scholar than I am. He can read all of the Greek classics and the Greek histories and all of that stuff in Greek. And he's now a professor of New Testament at a liberal graduate theological uh, school. I, I went online this week and read about him. And uh, he's written three scholarly books. And I went on Amazon.com and read the description of the books and the review of them. And they're all attacking the gospel, the, the veracity of the gospel. Um, they are dealing with early history, trying to undermine the truth of the apostolic witness, saying that the resurrection, well, there were various resurrection myths about Jesus. And I'm convinced the man doesn't know Christ. And so here he is, this accomplished scholar who doesn't even know Jesus in a saving way. It's tragic. Don't be like that. Jesus gives us solid testimony here. He calls the witnesses to the bench. There's His own testimony backed up by the Father. They are one. Testimony of John the Baptist. The testimony of Jesus' works. And the testimony of all of Scripture line up. And Jesus spoke these words so that you may be saved. So please, don't leave this room this morning if you're not saved without making sure that you are. Let's bow before Him. Father, I struggle to make this clear, and only You can break into blind eyes and open them to see, to hard hearts and impart spiritual life to them. Only You can make dry bones live. 
And Father, I pray that you would do that. If any are here who don't know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that you would bring them to that point this morning. And I pray, Father, you would strengthen us, your people, with these witnesses that you've given, that we might with confidence bear witness of the Savior to those around us who are in darkness. So we ask you to work through your word, through your spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to partake of the Lord's table at this time, and the uh, ushers are going to pass out.